Thank you, Steve. This has been a, an eventful week. It's been a fun week. It's been a wonderful week. I've had a chance to interact uh, with several people this week who've said, uh, I was moaning, I said, you know, I was going to spend two weeks on the canon, and it looks like it's unfolded into four or five or six weeks, however many it's been, I don't know. And someone said, actually, I've had several people say to me, no, 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 that's not the kind of stuff most people ever get a chance to study. And so it's important, and it's okay. So with that, this is the last week of the canon itself, and we'll start looking at the New Testament next week. We'll start with the Gospel of Mark, because it was probably written first. And then from the Gospel of Mark, we'll go through Matthew and Luke, and then we'll do John. We'll look at them in an assorted number of ways. But I'm excited about that, and I'm really looking forward to it. And I hope that you'll come, that you'll bring visitors and friends and guests and have a real good time. Uh, Just in the last week or so, my mom had a chance to go up and visit with her sister, Aunt Penny, who's in our class many times when she's down here visiting mom. And Aunt Penny had some things in her home that were my grandmother's. My grandmother uh, passed away uh, April a year ago, April 10th. And uh, uh, it was uh, a chance for mom to get some of those things. And there were a couple of things that had been set aside for me, uh, which was a treat. And, and among what had been set aside for me were a couple of pictures. Here's one of the pictures. Now, that picture that you see there, the lady in the coat... That would be my great-grandmother, Mary. I did not know her. She died before I was born. But that's my great-grandmother, Mary, with two children at her feet. Now, that boy at her feet with the hat on, that's my granddaddy, Tommy. That's my mom's father. So great-grandmother Mary would have been my mom's grandmother through her dad. And that's who she was. It was a wonderful chance to not only get the picture, but it was a chance to sit down with mom in the internet and do a little genealogy research. Now you can find some amazing things on the internet when you do genealogy research. They have the census data and the actual census papers. You can pull them up for the censuses that go back. uh, You've got to go, I think 1940 is the most recent one. For privacy reasons, the federal government won't post them until they're at least, I think, 70 years old is the way the, the rule's written. But at any rate, we went back and we started digging out some information. My great-grandmother Mary was born in 1876, and she died somewhere around 1950, which explains why I never knew her, because I wasn't born until 1960. So there's this gap. But fortunately, my mom bridges the gap. Mom was born sometime in the 1900s. (laughs) And she's still with us today. I was filling out these insurance forms and there was a woman interviewing me for the insurance information, a nurse, whose life insurance policy. And she's asking me all these questions to make sure that they can sign that they've been asked and that I've been very honest about them and... She says, okay, now, how old are you? I said, I'm 51 years old. What's your date of birth, 10, 20, 60? And 
what, uh, are your father and mother still alive? I said, uh, my father's already passed away. Well, when did he die and what did he die from? Uh, is your mother still alive? Yes, she is. And how old is your mother? I said, uh, 29. And she starts to write 29. And as she starts to write it, she pauses and says, what? I said, 29. She said, well, that can't be. And I said, well, you'll have to take that up with her. And she said, she said, well, no, I mean, you're, you're 51. Your mother can't be 29. I said, you'll have to take that up with her. That's what I've been told, and I'm not going to call my mom a prevaricator. Anyway, so mom bridged the gap, which made it so much fun because I got to sit with mom and have mom start regaling me with stories of, of love and and uh, children, and family, and the automobile, and moving from East Texas to Abilene, and, and uh, 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 all sorts of great, wonderful stories that I would not have known otherwise. But mom knew them. And I really, really enjoyed that. And that was in the midst of a week when I'm writing this lesson. And it's important to me because the unfolding of history is really what this lesson's about as we try and address who picked out the books of the New Testament and how did they make those determinations? Who decided what's in this book and what's not? For that matter, who put them in the order they put them? Well, these are questions that are very important, and I want us to look at them today, but before we do, I want you to go into this with three different people in your mind. I want you to think about a fellow named St. Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Lyon, he's often called, because uh, he was from a town that's today called Lyon, France. Not from a town, but that's where he was the bishop. So in 125 or so, Irenaeus was born. Now, we don't really know. We're like 20 years in there. He could have been born in 115. He could have been born in 140. Scholars don't really know when he was born, but he was probably born by 140. Could have been as early as 110. I threw in 125. But the C there is for the Latin kirka, which means about. So he's born about 125 or so. He was born... Uh, we don't know where, but we think he probably grew up in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna is one of the towns in Revelation that receives one of the seven letters of the churches that John wrote. The seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation, one of them is Smyrna. One of them is also Ephesus, which is about 40 miles south of Smyrna. We know that, that uh, Irenaeus grew up in Smyrna... And we know that by the time 180 rolls around, he becomes the bishop of the church at Lyon, which was called Lugdunum at the time. It was in Gaul, southern Gaul. It was the largest Roman town north of the Alps. It was a commercial center. And so, uh, uh, and if you go to Lyon, France today, you can still find some of the old Roman ruins there. It's been around for a long, long time. So Irenaeus is that fella, and I really want us to concentrate on that area of the country where he grew up initially, because that's important, Smyrna and Ephesus. Look at it on the map. See that it's in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. It's over near Jerusalem. 
And that's important because that's where the Apostle John finally settled. Before we get there, though, Irenaeus grows up around Smyrna, may have been born there, we don't know for certain, but there was a bishop of Smyrna named Polycarp. And Polycarp is very important in our lesson today. We're going to talk about Polycarp. In fact, I've attached to the appendix of the lesson, the handout, my synopsis or review of the martyrdom of Polycarp because it's one of the most moving pieces of early church writing to me. And I think it's worth you reading. We don't have time to cover it today. I just grabbed it out of the old church history class we taught, popped it in there, the love of a computer. But Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, is important, and it's because he sits there in range of the Apostle John. Now, there are a lot of scholars and skeptics that deny or try to deny or try to write against this idea, but what I'm giving you is what church history said, and it's contemporary church history, the writings of Irenaeus. The writings a century later of Eusebius, church historian, century and a half later. So these are legitimate things. The Apostle John supposedly, according to those early church writings, he died when Emperor Trajan took the throne sometime after that, which would have happened around 98 AD. That's about the time of Emperor Trajan. So the Apostle John is there and he lives and works out of Ephesus towards the end of his life. He's exiled to the Isle of Patmos, as we read in Revelation in church history. So this whole area, which is about 60 miles or so offshore of Ephesus. So this whole area is one that's an important part of the early church. Tradition in early church history teaches that Jesus, the mother of Mary, who John took care of, was also in Ephesus and she died there. Ephesus, of course, was an important town evangelized by the Apostle Paul, which quickly took on great worth and merit, and is also one of the seven churches to receive a letter from Revelation in the Revelation. So with that in mind, look at the unfolding of history. Irenaeus is to the Apostle John, in a sense, what I am to my great-grandmother Mary. I didn't know her, but I've got some great stories from Mom. And my mom knew her well. I dare say she existed. And I would say that even if I hadn't seen the picture. Because mom has been able to tell me about her. Irenaeus had one middle person between him and the Apostle John. And that chain's going to be very important as we go through class. Because the unfolding of history is the story of the canon. By canon, if you haven't been here or if you need a reminder, canon just means that measurement, that rule, that straight edge, ruler uh, of what is the collection of scriptures that we regard as holy from God. So who decided what's in there? That's an unfolding of history story those characters need to be in your brain, but before we get to those characters, I want to ask you this question. Who needs a canon? Who needs a collection of scriptures anyway? Well, obviously you and I do. But who else? Where does this need come from? 
And to answer this, we got to go way back, and I want you to put yourself in the apostles' shoes for a minute. They may have had sandals, but I really like those shoes, so I just thought, you know, we'll use them anyway. Put yourself in the apostles' shoes for a moment, and let's throw a timeline up. If Jesus dies, is buried, and is resurrected in the early 30s, 30, 31, 32, 33, something in that time range, the apostles are there, and they experience and interact with Jesus. But then Jesus says to them in Jerusalem, hey, don't leave. And Jesus ascends into the heavens and disappears into a cloud. And then as the, the apostles are there going, whoa. An angel appears next to him and says, why are you gawking up at the sky? He will come again just as he's left. Now tend to your business and do what he told you to do. And so they did. But you've got to know when they're standing there. Now remember, I said put yourself in their shoes. Don't look at this from the year 2012. Look at this from 32 AD or whenever it may have been. Look at this and think, okay, he's left, he's coming back. He's told us to stay here. He said he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Um, all right, let's stay here. He told us to stay together and to be ready. So we're ready. Where is he? Do they need a cannon that day? No. When's he coming back? They don't know. But most scholars suspect, and most biblical teachers teach, and I think fairly so, that they're thinking it could be like any day. And they're expecting him to come back most any moment. Jesus himself said before his death, he said, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So they don't know when it is, but they know that it's a day, it's an hour. It's just right around the corner, perhaps. Jesus did say, be ready. The Son of Man's coming at an hour you don't expect. So be watchful, be ready, be right. I mean, it can happen any moment now. And they just are ready. And that readiness evidences itself, I would assert, the way the church sold all of their possessions and gave everything to the poor. Look, if I knew the Lord Jesus was going to come back in seven days, and I knew that for certain, number one, I would not be going to Gainesville, Florida tomorrow <laughs> on my job. Number two, I would really, really, really take everything I possibly can and get rid of it in any way I could that would either help bring people to Christ or whatever. I don't need to worry about being able to make payroll in two weeks if the Lord's coming back in seven days. Kevin, take the payroll for two weeks from now and give it away. Especially if it looks like it'll bring someone to the Lord. So the church sells everything they've got. They hold it all in common. They think he's coming back any day now. They don't need the cannon. 
They've got the apostles there to tell them. They've got the Holy Spirit. Peter's there preaching sermons live. Now, over the next time period, the mission effort continues. And they begin to realize, hey, it may not be just like today. And he did say go into all the ends of the earth. And so you even see Paul going on his mission trips. And on his second mission trip, he goes to a town in Macedonia, Greece called Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, he teaches them about Jesus. And afterwards, he continues on his his journey. And he has to write them letters back. And when he's writing them back, he writes them and says, Look, you're worried about the second coming and whether or not you've missed it. And whether or not the dead people who die before Jesus comes back really have a chance. Don't worry. The dead people do get to go. Because the people were thinking, Jesus is coming back before anybody even dies. And then all of a sudden someone dies and, oh my goodness, they died before Jesus came back. And does this mean that they're dead forever? And Paul has to write them back and say, no, not only does it not mean that, but we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we're not going to precede those who've fallen asleep. They get to come too. And scholars point out the fact that Paul uses that word, we who are alive. Who are left until the coming of the Lord. Because Paul's thinking, he's, God's coming back in his time. See, God does never... It's the same way with the Old Testament. God doesn't just dump all God knowledge immediately out on all of the people. Revelation has always been progressive. As God reveals more and more and more and more and more over time. As people begin to understand and digest. And society and culture grows. And holiness grows. And and the need grows. God dispenses on a need to know basis. And so the apostles, Jesus had told them. You don't know. Only God knows when it's going to be. Live like it's any day now. Paul, write we who are alive because that is true. There will be those of us who are alive when Jesus returns. And we should act like and and believe that it could happen any moment now. Because there will be that moment. And may we be ready. So we see at this point... That there's a need for the church to get some letters for certain occasions. When the church has a need for something, like the Thessalonians, they needed a word from the Lord to help clarify what they were thinking. And Paul wasn't there live to tell them. He wrote them a letter and he sent the letter to them. There were needs or occasions for letters at this point in time. A canon? Well, I think this is where we start seeing it unfold. Because we'll see that these letters get copied. We'll see that these letters get traded amongst the churches. And start being gathered together as the treasures they are. There's not only a need that's arising because of different occasions that are events or or ideas that are are unfolding in in the churches. But there's another need for a canon that starts developing here. Because there's a need to start correcting some teaching that's out there. See, over time, it's not just the apostles teaching, but you've got other people teaching as well. Paul talks to the Philippians about those who preach out of envy and conceit. Paul talks to the Galatians about those who preach a different gospel. Paul talks to the Thessalonians about those who write letters as if they're from Paul. So there's a need for some correcting. Paul takes Peter to task. For the way Peter was was living. 
There's the Acts 15 conference we've talked about, about do Jews or, or Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? So there's a need for correcting that goes out there. And this is not something that's stunning to people. Jesus had said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So the people were prepared for that. They knew about it. You can read what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. Paul writes to Timothy and he says... uh, See if we can make this a little bit bigger for everybody. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, you remain at Ephesus. So you can charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. See? Not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promise speculations rather than the stewardship from God by faith. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion. Look at this, verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There's a lot of teaching out there that's garbage. And you've got to do something about it. So there's a need for correct doctrine. To be written down and sent to these churches in letters. Now, something else happens. In the 60s, the apostles start dying. They start realizing that Jesus never said when he was coming back. He pointedly did not say when he was coming back. They didn't deny their faith. They didn't turn around and say, oh gee, this whole thing was malarkey. No, they died for their faith. Rather than, rather than say, ah. Must have been a mistake. Mia culpa. My fault. Rather than, than, than that, they, they're good. they will die before they'll deny the reality of the resurrected Jesus. They've been living by the power of it. Heavens, Paul, do you think Paul on his own had the ability to raise Lucky from the dead? Eutychus is his Greek name, but it means Lucky. Eutychus, oh Lucky, falls out the window and dies and Paul brings him back. Do you think Paul had the ability to heal the sick absent the Holy Spirit? No, they weren't all of a sudden quavering in their faith. They would die for their faith, but they were dying for their faith. And they began to realize, okay, we need some eyewitness accounts to what happened. And this is where we see the Gospels being written. And this is where we see the the New Testament writings really starting to take shape and form. Paul's been writing letters at this point in time, maybe some others. But the people are remembering that this is very much part of what Jesus said in John 15, 26 through 27. In John 15, 26 through 27, Jesus warned people that he was going away, but God would send a helper. And this is what he said. When the helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds forth from the Father. This Holy Spirit will bear witness about me, Jesus, and you 
will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. See, Jesus told them that the Holy Spirit would come and the Holy Spirit in tandem with the apostles would bear witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth. And my friends, that's what our New Testament is. It is through the apostles and through the Holy Spirit a testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the teachings for his bride, his body, for the ends of the earth. So as the apostles begin to die, the apostles write by the Holy Spirit. And they know that they're writing beyond themselves. This is not just where they're writing and then later the church says, oh, that's the Holy Spirit that was writing it. They had that prophetic promise from Jesus, but they even recognized there's a place where Paul says, time out, this is me, not the Lord. When he's talking about marriage and the appropriateness of it, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, to the married, I give this charge. Now, that's not me. This is the Lord talking. But to the rest of you, I say, and now this is me, this isn't from the Lord. So he'll draw that distinction. He understood what he was writing. If you look at what Second Peter says, and the skeptics will say, well, Second Peter wasn't written by Peter. I don't care for this purpose who it was written by. It's a recognition in the early church that as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. He wasn't writing out of his own wisdom. He was writing out of something given to him. Now, there are some things in what Paul wrote that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures, recognizing the early church saw Paul's writings as scripture. The apostles not only began to die in a writing, but they're also appointing successors. We see Paul do this with Timothy. And you read 2 Timothy and Paul says, you know, bless you, here's what you need to do and, and keep this and do this. You know, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. There's laid up for me. But you keep going and you appoint Peter. He teaches Peter, here are the elders you need to appoint in the church. And here's what they need to be. And here are the presbyters. And he's laying down structure for future generations. So they appoint their successors. The last apostle dies, as we mentioned earlier, around 98 A.D. That's John, the apostle John. He dies. And in Ephesus, at least north of Smyrna, he leaves Polycarp. Because you see, John and Polycarp knew each other. John blessed Polycarp as a successor in the church. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, overlaps with John. We can read about it from a number of places, but I've pulled out something Irenaeus wrote. This first quotation he wrote in a letter that we don't have anymore, but Eusebius, fortunately, quoted the letter in his ecclesiastical history in the early 300s. Here's what Irenaeus said. While I was still a boy, I saw you, this is Fresenius, the guy he's writing the letter to. I saw you, Fresenius, in Lower Asia with Polycarp. I recall the events of that time better than what has happened recently. He is getting old timers. For what we learn as children grows with the soul and becomes one with it. So I can tell you the place, even the place where the blessed Polycarp sat and talked 
His goings, His comings, the manner of His life, the appearance of His body, the discourses which He gave to the multitude, how He reported His living with John the Apostle and with the rest of the apostles who'd seen the Lord, how He remembered their words and what the things were which He heard from them about the Lord, about His miracles, about His teaching, how Polycarp received them from eyewitnesses of the word of life and proclaimed them all. In harmony with the scriptures. Here's another passage in Irenaeus uh, uh, in his book against heresies where he talks about Polycarp. He says, Polycarp likewise not only was taught by the apostles and conversed with many of those who saw our Lord. But also was appointed bishop of the church at Smyrna in Asia by the apostles. We too saw him, Polycarp, in our early age. For he lived on a long time and departed this life as a very old man, having most gloriously and most nobly suffered martyrdom. Again, read the appendix. He always taught the things he learned from the apostles, which he also handed on to the church and which alone are true. Of this, all the churches in Asia bear witness, as well as the successors of Polycarp until the present day. Now, Irenaeus is writing this around 175, 180. Polycarp's been dead 25, 30 years. It's not that long ago. And this is what he has to say. Now, we're not just having to read Irenaeus on Polycarp. Because when John dies leaving Polycarp, Polycarp wrote. We've got a letter to Polycarp. But we've also got writings from, or one writing at least, from Polycarp. We have a letter Polycarp wrote to the Philippians. And he wrote it about 110. This is a dozen years after the death of John. And you can read that letter. And you can, there's a friendly neighborhood library where you can read all of this if you want to. But you go read Polycarp's letter to the Philippians and you're going to find that he quotes our references, the book of Matthew, the book of Luke, the book of Acts, the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, First Peter, and First John. Now, does that mean those are the only books he believes are biblical? No, I'm going to tell you I haven't quoted half of the books in the Old Testament today, but I don't mean that they don't belong in the Bible. That just means those were the ones relevant to him. Those were scriptures that he had at the ready. And look at the way he does it. Here's one passage. He says, Polycarp writes, only as it is said in these scriptures, plural, be angry and sin not, and do not let the sun set on your anger. Well, be angry and sin not is from Psalm 4, 5. In fact, Paul quotes it in Ephesians. But the rest of it, do not let the sun set on your anger, is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so where Paul quotes the psalm, Polycarp quotes the psalm and Paul and calls both of them on equal footing scriptures. 110 A.D., 12 years after the death of John. Now, 
let's go to the next generation. Let's go to St. Irenaeus. For St. Irenaeus, he talks about Scripture a lot because he's confronting heresy and he's writing against heresy and he's writing to stand up for what he understood the apostolic message to be that was his charge and responsibility. There were four types of Scripture, four categories. There was the law, there were the prophets, Old Testament, there were the evangelists or gospels, and there were the apostolic writings. And Irenaeus had a lot to say about these scriptures, including then the Gospels and the Apostolic Writings. He says, the scriptures are perfect in as much as they were spoken by God's Word and Spirit. What else does he say? One in the same Spirit who heralded through the prophets of the Old Testament, he himself announced through the Apostles. It is not possible, he said, that there be more gospels in number than these four or fewer. The fourfold gospel, which is held together by the one spirit. He recognized, Irenaeus recognized, four gospels alone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, he relates them back to Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1.10 as the four faces of the angels of God. And that's why they, the, the, the gospel writers got those early symbols associated with them. Lion, eagle. But Irenaeus says there's got to be four gospels. There's four corners of the end of the earth for the gospel message to be taken to. There's only four. There can't be less. There can't be more. This was not concocted by someone 400 years after the death of Jesus. This is something that was very real and understood in the church at the earliest of times. Irenaeus quotes or uses every New Testament book except Philemon and 3 John, which are very, very, very small. You almost have to have a reason to want to quote them or reference them. Every other one is used by Irenaeus. 1,075 times he quotes the New Testament. This is just one sin. John hadn't been dead a hundred years. So this is what we have. Now Irenaeus distinguishes those books that are heretical and those movements that are heretical. He distinguishes the gospel of Judas we talked about earlier that's been discovered. He distinguishes other heretical gospels. He says, look what they do. He says... They basically just take little bits of truths out of Scripture and they rearrange them and shuffle them and take them out of context and make something abhorrent, altogether new and different. That no more represents what Scripture taught than the man in the moon. He said it's like if you had some great artist make a tile mosaic of an emperor. And then some know-nothing comes along and takes all the little tiles apart and rearranges them and makes a mosaic of a dog. Okay, that took like a long time. You want to say it again? Watch. Okay, yeah. It says, that doesn't any more resemble what the first looked like than the man in the moon. And you can take anything you want out of context and, and make some patchwork quilt, but all you're doing is making heresy. And that's not right. Now having said that, 
when does the church make its final decision on what goes in? Well, this goes back and forth because there are minor issues and there are disputes that last for 300 or last till the 300s, I should say. The question's not over whether there should be a Bible or even how you determine what's in it. It's just they live in a world that's not our internet, immediate interchange, cell phone world. You want to know how my son did this morning? He ran a half marathon over in England. We can call him and say, what was your time? We don't have to wait for him to tell somebody who's going to write something, who's going to find that slow boat that will finally make it over here, that will then come into some harbor in New York, find somebody with a slow donkey who's going to haul that donkey all the way across the land to Texas, and we'll find out in another year and a half. If it works and someone doesn't get waylaid on the way. So we're used to this, oh, whoa, 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 it's, it's coming right now. Boom, 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 boom. Heavens, by the time they find out, 30,000 other things have already happened. And then they got to get word back. So the question becomes, okay, John writes Revelation. Well, if we believe what the Bible says and we believe early church history and we set aside the cynicism for a moment, John writes Revelation from the Isle of Patmos. To the seven churches of Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Laodicea, he's writing to those churches that are all within the same range of each other. Now the people in Alexandria, Egypt, which is a world away, may have a great deal of cynicism over whether or not John wrote that. It certainly doesn't read like the rest of the New Testament, does it? They weren't one of the seven churches. How could anyone write a letter to the seven churches and leave out Alexandria and Rome? Those are real important churches. There's something fishy here. This may not be authentic. And heaven forbid we allow into Scripture something that's not truly apostolic or authentic. There were criteria that the church used to determine what makes it into the Bible. The criteria I've listed out, but one of the main principles is it's got to be old. It's got to be from the apostolic age. If it's written in 150 A.D., it's a no-brainer. It's not apostolic. There's no way those lost scriptures that are talked about, for example, by uh, uh, Professor Ehrman, we're going to be biblical if they're written 150 to 200 A.D. Because one of the principal considerations of the church was the need for the material to be old. It can't be authentic if it's not dated early. It's got to have the imprimatur of apostolic teaching, if not the ink of an apostle. Now, we'll get to it. Look, the, 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 the apostles... John probably could not read or write beyond what he needed to to sell fish. And the same is likely true for Peter. Matthew's a tax collector. He's got to be able to, to do his reports and he's got to be able to read and write. But 
But that doesn't mean that these people can't produce their Gospels. I've got to tell you, for the first 15 years I practiced law, I couldn't type. But I filed many a pleading in the courthouse that were typed. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Gloria. And all the other wonderful people in my life who I would dictate to. You know, we used to have these little machines. In fact, I've still got one. It's not this one. But it's a dictaphone. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Boom, boom, boom. Da-da-da-da-da. And you get a little tape, and they put the little tape in. They had Greek dictation. We know that they dictated. So if Peter gospel and his recounting of the life of Christ is taken down by Mark and published, that doesn't mean it's not apostolic. If John employs a different secretary to write one letter from one that he wrote 30 or 40 years before, and the secretary takes it down and puts it down... Listen, I'm not going to tell you this, but there is a preacher who sells a whole lot of books. I'm not going to tell you who he is, but he sells a ton. And he doesn't write them. He preaches them and has a fellow in Nashville take the sermons and put it into written words and then emails it back to the preacher and the preacher proofs it and says, yeah, I like this or no, I don't like this or let's change this. There's nothing, and then the church recognized, you know, for the apostles to be able to dictate, for someone to be able to listen to their sermons, listen to their classes, write it down, read it back to them and say, what do you think? No, change that, change that, change that. And it doesn't mean anything to me that they didn't know how to write necessarily. The point is, it had to have their imprimatur. It had to have their message. It had to be authentic in time. It had to have apostolic anointment. It had to fit within the congruency of the issues of faith. Those are the matters that the church looked at. And the only fusses they had were over a couple of small little books that they couldn't figure out. You know, Hebrews. Did Paul really write that? That just seems so different than Paul. But by the time they, they recognize the message is so clear that it's at least consistent with everything else that's being taught. And it was recognized by the earliest church fathers as a writing of Paul. Which means it's either something Paul wrote, or it's something that Paul approved of. Or it's something that followed what Paul was saying. And so that's what the church did. This was not a decision, though, that was made in the late 300s when Athanasius wrote his letter and then a council later on adopts the, 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 the canon itself. That's the church clarifying the communications once they had all gotten together. It is on a large scale what happened in Acts 15 on a small scale where the church comes together in a council or a conference and they sit down and they weigh through the evidence and they sift through the history and they pray about it and they search the scriptures about it and then they come to a decision that's right by them and the Holy Spirit and they publish and that's done in Acts 15, and it's done by the early church, but it's also something that was merely recognizing what had already been illustrated by the teachers of the apostles and the, uh, of the, those appointed by the apostles. And you see it in Polycarp. You see it in Irenaeus. You see it in all of these church fathers. 
early church history, the patristic times are wonderful times to study. We've got a lot of lessons online for those if you ever want to get to them. But here are your points for home. Paul said to the church in Rome, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Now there are a lot of people who claim to know the mind of the Lord. And there are a lot of people who write off the Lord because he doesn't seem to have the mind they think he should have. So I guess they claim to have the mind of the Lord. And if he doesn't share their mind, he must not exist. But Paul doesn't say either of those. He says, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? Who who is owed by God? From God, through God, and to God are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. I want us to give God's word a place of authority in our life. His ways are not our ways. We don't know his mind except to the extent that he has revealed it to us. Let's just make a decision as we go into this New Testament study that we're going to really diligently apply ourselves to find and understand everything we can that by his grace and his spirit he'll reveal to us. It can change who we are and how we live. Second, there are some things in the scriptures that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. That's true in other scriptures. It's true in the writings of Paul, especially Romans 9, 10, and 11. That's kind of a joke, but not really. I just want us to make this commitment. Let's commit to trying to understand scripture for what scripture says. Let's don't make Scripture say what we want it to say. Let's understand it for what it says, recognizing it's God's revelation to us in the manner and in the form that He's chosen to give it. And the truth is there accordingly. Final. Now, to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen there is no doubt that God is at work in your life and in mine and he's at work in a way that he can do immeasurably more than all you can ask all you can imagine, according to a power at work in you, a power that is so great it could resurrect Jesus Christ from the dead, a power that is so great it could create every particle in the universe, a power that is so great that it knows string theory because it wrote string theory if string theory turns out to be true. And that's the power at work in your life and mine. Now, he may not work the way you'd like him to, And he may not work to the end you want him to work. But praise God, like Pastor Fleming said, I want to be on his side. By the way, email our pastor for one of the most profoundly touching, moving, motivating sermons I've ever heard today. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we pause right now at the end of this lesson with expectant hearts, excited that here is a word, Lord, that you've secured for the ages. Here's a word that through your wisdom the church has, has put together for us that reflects true eyewitness events, that reflects genuine apostolic preaching and teaching, inspired by your Holy Spirit to unlock the doors to your kingdom so that we could stand together by the blood of Jesus, loving each other, ministering in this world, and learning more about you until that day you bring us home. Amen.